Switzerland. We're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution, an economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world to the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, our interview with Eric Hoffer. <laughs> well, well, not not really an interview, considering he died in 1983, Ron. So that yeah, was a little, little little rough, a little rough. Yeah, to... I was open. Well, I thought maybe I know something I don't. Yeah. <laughs> Thomas has been working miracles getting his guests, so who knows? No, absolutely, absolutely. But, you know, I figured, because, look, a lot of what we have to talk about with Eric Hoffer is going to be quotations of his. So in a, in a, in a, a metaphysical sense, it's an interview. We could have um, an interview based around that. Yeah, yeah right, sure. right. Well, yeah. But that would, that would be an interesting show and probably way more work than either one of us wants to sign up for. But, we, you know, to, to actually write out... Uh, an interview and have us one of us play the part of Eric Hoffer. That would be kind of cool. But anyway, good stuff. Well, let's, let's first talk about who is this guy, Eric Hoffer. And let me just say that I was introduced to him through you. Uh, You, you have a quote that of his, that you share in many of your presentations and we'll get to that quote because I, I I think we might want to spend some time on it, but uh, he was uh, uh, an American, and this is in quotes, Ron, an American moral philosopher and, and social philosopher. And the, the, the reason why it's in quotes on the American part is we're not exactly sure. We think he was born in America. He claimed to have been born in America, in the Bronx, actually, in 1898. But uh, it doesn't seem that that always comports to the facts, being as he don't doesn't turn up in a census until like 1950, Mm-hmm. Right, yep. the census of 1950. So, um, you know, might have, well, maybe 1940. I think it was 1940. Might have been around for a while, but uh, it's all. It's very possible this guy was, as we would say in the parlance of today, around an illegal immigrant. Absolutely, very yep. possible that he was that who, who ultimately won the Presidential Medal of Freedom that he got from in 1993 from from Ronald Reagan. But uh, just just quick. Quick background on him, really just interesting, and this is, of course, the story that he tells. His parents were immigrants from Alsace, uh, which was part of Imperial Germany at the time. And when he was five, his mom fell down the stairs with him in her arms. And she passed away, I think, a couple of years later. Uh, He ended up losing his eyesight at the age of seven which was just kind of weird because he then his eyesight and his memory, which I thought was odd. And then it comes back to him when he's 15, like his eyesight comes back. That's, that's pretty intense. Like, I don't even know, like, how does that happen? I mean, maybe a, a blood clot finally clears. I mean, no idea what would cause that. I have no idea how the human body might work, but this is, this is what he claims. Uh, he, he always had a German accent, although he, he said that he was born in the Bronx, so which would be weird that he would have a German accent if he was born in the Bronx, 
and let out of the house at all. And I can tell you, I can tell you this because I've been in the Bronx. Yes. And that's part of the speculation about why they think he might've been born in Germany because he held onto that accent his entire life. And Mm -hmm. his, his response or, or the counterclaim is, well, he was, he was kind of isolated. He was raised by who was it, Martha or something, uh, you know, a servant in the household. And he was, he didn't go to school. So he was right. isolated, and that you would maintain your accent if you were isolated like that. Yeah, I suppose that's true. That's true. Um, but he he became a migrant worker and and went went out to California, did play, worked in the harvests, and as he liked to say, he acquired a library card, dividing his time between the books and the brothels. I thought that was an interesting quote <laughs> that came across. Uh, he even prospected for gold, but then then I guess one winter he we, reads the essays of Michel de Montaigne, and we know how crazy that guy was being the kind of meta philosopher that that he was and which really spoke to hopper and then um hopper just seems to come into his own at that point starts to starts to write write books uh and and become extraordinarily well known had a column for a while uh was was visited john president lyndon johnson in the white house just an incredible uh, intellect and uh really wrote three separate books which, which we're going to talk about quickly but I'll, I'll pass it to you, Ron. What do you, what, where do you want to start with this guy? Well, yeah, because there's so much to say about his three books, uh, one of which was really popular and cited by Eisenhower during one of his television press conferences. I mean, he claimed that Eric Hoffer was one of his favorite authors, and it just really put Hoffer on the map. And his first book, The True Believer, uh, which I think was 1951. But Ed, I, I read an interesting book by Tom Bethel, who's a libertarian writer and a fantastic writer, by the way. I love this guy. He's just a beautiful writer. And he wrote a book called Eric Hoffer, The Longshoreman Philosopher, in 2012. And all of Hoffer's papers are embodied in the Hoover Institution. And there's even mystery around his date of birth, by the way. He claimed in a lot of different places it was 1902, but it's more likely 1898. Um, And he was really good friends with a married woman, Lily Osborne, who knew him better than anyone. And period. And she thought it was very possible that he did indeed was, was born in Germany. Um, he applied for social security application 37. And on that application, he did say he was born in New York city in 1898. So his, his fellow dock workers, I, I, I love this. He called him the one who writes books <laughs> and, uh, he was turned down by the U S army in 1942 because he had a hernia, but he, he wrote, he found himself broke in San Diego in 1934, and he lived on Skid Row in L.A., and then he became a migrant worker in Central Valley, and that's kind of what moved him north. And then from there, he moved to San Francisco permanently after Pearl Harbor. He described himself as an atheist, although Tom Bethel believes that it's far more complex than that because he was very concerned about the fate of the Jews. He wrote about the Jewish and, and uh, people and Israel quite a lot and was very worried about uh, what would happen to them. He became an adjunct professor at UC Berkeley during the free speech movement, which was interesting. And he, you could say easily, he was among the first wave of neoconservative. And I use that in the way it was meant to be used when it was coined, which is, you know, former liberals, FDR liberals, turning away from the left, mostly Mm -hmm. because of their pro-communist stance. But the other thing is, and he was wrong about some things. He got some things wrong. Murray Rothbard was highly critical 
Mr. Hoffer. And of course, right. Larry Rothbard is libertarian economist. But, you know, um, it just, just a super, super interesting life. And one of the things I found really interesting was he didn't talk about other writers very much, other than maybe the philosophers. You know, he, he did mention them. But two contemporary writers impressed the hell out of him. One was George Gilder. There you go. In an article and commentary in defense of monogamy. And the other one was Malcolm Muggeridge, uh, who wrote an essay on Sidney and Beatrice Webb, who were the socialist communist founders of, you know, the London School of Economics. So um, just really interesting stuff. He's he's just coincidentally, I don't know why I'm going to even mention this, but he is buried at Holy Cross in Colma, which is kind of near South San Francisco. And that's where my grandmother's buried no, oh, interesting. Well, there's a oh. connection there, Ron. That's, you know, it's always <laughs> connected before content. Before but, content. but let me give you something he said in 1970s, Ed, and I don't know the, the exact year he said this, but he said, Russia's day of judgment will come sometime in the 90s. And when the day comes, everyone will wonder that few people foresaw the inevitability of the end. Wow. So he's one person that did predict, and there's a few others, by the way, but he's one person on the record that predicted the fall of the Soviet Union. And this is then 70s where the time when everybody, the convergence was the big theory, you know, that they were, we were converging with one another and that we were reaching some type of parity, which mm, was right. complete nonsense. Um, but he, and he never bought that. So um, he had some really interesting views that I'm sure we'll get into. Um, he said he, one person he did not like was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, he said prior to FDR, he said, if you failed, you blamed yourself after FDR, you blamed the government and the system. He says America's decline began with FDR and it's absurd to think of him as a great man. Wow. That's harsh. <laughs> Pretty harsh right there. He had very harsh things to say about FDR and intellectuals in general. Um, you know, Jean-Paul uh, Sartre has this great quote that intellectuals enjoy the privilege of being scandalously asinine without harming their reputations. Right. <laughs> That's a great line, by the way. And Hoffer, and get this, I love this. Hoffer wondered, what would America have been like if only college graduates had been allowed to enter the country. Mm. That's kind of a profound question. You know, in the day and age, we talk about the H-1B visa program, and we need the brainiacs, right? We need to sure. only admit the people with degrees, and they can start off right away. And that's kind of a great contrary point. It's a it's a great point. It's a great point. And up there with, with Buckley, I said, I'd rather be run by the what first hundred people in the phone book in Cambridge rather than the faculty at Harvard. So, yep. Yep. Um, yeah, no, it de definitely an interesting guy. The, the, the woman you mentioned that he, he had an affair and a child with her, right? I think it's speculated that, you know, when I went back to look at the biography this morning, I didn't get into the details of that. Um, but yeah, I do believe there's some speculation. Her husband like moved to Alaska or something. So there's a whole really weird, it's a really weird dynamic there, but uh, it is, it is thought that one of the kids she gave birth to was his. And I don't know if that's ever been confirmed or not. I'd have to go back and look. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I, cause I think it's even, I think the kid's name is even Eric, which is weird. 
if they, you know. Well, and she did. She did. I do remember that that she's, you know, we're going to name him after you. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, but I, I, yeah, beyond that, I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we're up against our first break. Juan, re- want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or myself by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website, of course, is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can visit us and see all to, or listen to all 220 previous shows, including this one. We do post previews of upcoming shows and have our archive page, as I mentioned, uh, other fun stuff on, out on the page. But right now, a word from our sponsor, Leading Results. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're doing Memorable Mentors, another installment. And this time we're looking at Eric Hoffer, who I ran across. And I don't even know. I think back in the early 2000s or something, I started reading about this guy and went out and got his books. Um, they've, they've all, you know, they were out of print, but now they're, they've all been republished, especially after 2001, by the way, um, especially his first book, The True Believer. That one was quickly mm-hmm. rushed to press after uh, 9-11. And uh, just a couple of other interesting things just from a biographical perspective about Eric. He um, he worried about automation. You know, he was a longshoreman and he did, he did work as a longshoreman, member of the union, the whole nine yards. And he did worry about automation. But later, he said, my fears were greatly exaggerated. So, mm. you know, he kind of started out as a Luddite. And, and then, of course, I, I found this line really exciting. I think this is out of his notebook. He says, I cannot get excited about anything unless I have a theory about it. Yeah. That's yeah, right <laughs> up there with you, Ron. That's, yep. Yeah, yeah. I that's see why right. you like that quote. 
<laughs> I could put you in that category too, but okay. Um, anyway, his book, The True Believer, which was his, is probably his best known work. Uh, the subtitle is Thoughts on the Nature of Mass Movements, and it was published in 51. This was the one that Eisenhower had. His Secretary of uh, State, uh, Wilson, I believe, or somebody, uh, had stacks of it in his office, and he would, he would pass it out to visitors. So he got a lot of publicity. He got put on the map. Uh, from that, from that mentioned by uh, Eisenhower, but uh, you know, it's a highly provocative look into the mind of the fanatic, and a penetrating study of how individuals become one, become a fanatic, mass movements, and political fanaticism. Um, and you know, true believers, Hoffer thought, are disappointed men, disappointed in their own lives. He said, but instead of recognizing this, they seek to reform the world. Nazi leaders are a classic example. Almost every Nazi leader, Goebbels, Hitler himself, b- a bunch of others, they all had artistic or literary ambitions, and they all failed miserably at them, knew they were complete and abject failures. Uh, he said, and, and he only mentions a handful of people, of, of true believers in the book, The True Believer, Hitler is one, Stalin is another, Luther, Gandhi, St. Paul, and Jesus. Hmm. So that book, what, what struck you about the, the book, True Believer, and some of his thoughts in it? Because it, it's really provocative. I mean, you, you think your way through Eric Hoffer, but, he's a, but he's, a, he's, a, he's a writer in the, I think, in the style of Thomas Sowell, meaning he's completely accessible. There's nothing complex or you know, too eerie died about him. He's, he's plain spoken, simple sentences, you know, few words, but boy, does he stop and just make you think and go, wow, that's profound. (laughs) Yeah, no, it it really some great stuff. And I, you know, I think, look, one of the quotes that jumped out at me from, from that book is that the genius of a great leader consists in concentrating all the hatred on a single foe. Yes. Right. We we do not usually look for allies when we love, but we always look for allies when we hate. Right. 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 Love that. It's a great line. It is a great line. And and the 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 thing that is is so interesting about, it, and this is I think another line, I don't know if it's from this book, but it was one of the quotes that I came across that I have is listed as non-categorized, but it could be from the book, is nationalist pride, like other variants of pride, can be a substitute for self-respect. Mm-hmm. Right, yep. and I think that 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 is super true right now, and I think that that's what we're we're seeing this fragmentation of people along both sides of the political aisle. Is this this you know they, they they're all claiming this nationalist pride and pride of what we can do, uh, either in Americans or as Americans, and. But, but it's but it's always the the collective. It's always about the collective, what we can do, rather than what individuals can do, and that 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 thinking scares me when it comes from from either side. And Hoffer is one that really is able to to uh, to bring that out. Yeah, I agree, I, and I, and I love this line from the book as well. Unless a man has the talents to make something of himself, freedom is an irksome burden. <laughs> we join a mass movement to escape individual responsibility, or in the words of the ardent young Nazi, and all I could think of, Ed, was Thomas from Man in My Castle, mm-hmm. to be free from freedom. Yep. that That's profound, too. I mean, we... <laughs> 
<laughs> Unless the ma- a man has the talents to make something of himself, freedom is an irksome burden. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, and we we, we see we see this linked linked all around. And what what you know the, the 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 question that we're all struggling with is what do we do about it? Of course, you know Hoffer says you, you, what we have to do is begin to look further into ourselves, right? Um, at, at one point, he says the search search for happiness is the one of one of the chief sources of unhappiness. Yeah, I also love when he said our frustration is greater when we have much and want more. Oh, that's a great, yes, and I've seen that quote. That's when we line. have nothing and want some. So let me, let me say that again. Our frustration is greater when we have much and want more than when we have nothing and want some. And here's a man who used to live on Skid Row. He knows what it's like growing up poor. In fact, he got in a big battle with a, a black sociologist campus of uh, Berkeley in a debate or something in a forum. And the guy accused him of being a racist. And, and he says, look, I grew up, I grew up poor. I, you know, I had nothing. Um, so I just, but that, you know, we always talk about first world problems and wow, that's just a profound, profound insight. Well, Nassim Taleb, I think in, in his latest book talks about the, the, the notion of the, the silver, silver and bronze medal winners always hate the gold medalist. Right. But the guy who comes in 50th is just happy to compete. Right, right. And, you know, right. he, did, he didn't have much use for economics. He thought the whole economics as a science thing was just just totally overwrought and just a bunch of, you know, hooey. Uh, so he didn't really spend a lot of time talking about economics. I think it's one of the reasons that uh, Murray Rothbard didn't like him. Um, but he also didn't have much uh, positive to say about historians. He says, if you look at the two groups that have done most damage on the world, it's probably historians and economists. <laughs> There's probably some truth to that. Probably is some truth to that, yeah. <laughs> and and what about economic historians? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whammy. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that he was corrected on or somebody, um, you know, people took him to task for was he kind of thought that Bolshevism, the communist revolution, was a mass movement. And Richard Pipes, who I believe just recently passed away within like the year or two, uh, incredible scholar from the Hoover Institution on, on, uh, on uh, communism and, and Soviet Russia, um, he, he took Hoffer to task for that. He said, the masses don't make revolutions, they make a living. Bolshevism was started by intellectuals, and 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 Hoffer rethought that and came to the same conclusion. He you know he realized that communism was not a mass movement; it wasn't some type mm. of democratic democratic upheaval. It was brought to us by intellectuals, as as are most revolutions. Yeah, um, it, it's it's one of the things I just I you know I keep hearing this thing about inequality, and if we don't if we don't solve this inequality problems, you know the masses are going to rise up and revolt. I'm like, show me some place in history where that's happened. Mm-hmm. Show me a revolution, I mean a bloodshed revolution that has not been started by intellectuals. I can't find one. No. No, it doesn't exist. So let, let's 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 shift to the next book, Ron, which is the Ordeal of Change, published in 1963. What's 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 your your kind of background on that one? Well, real quick before we get there, he just he, okay. This is in the footnote in a footnote from the True Believer, and I just wanted your take on it because it has to do okay. with language. And he said the best and worst is observed in the case of language. He was talking about the best and the worst of things. 
Mm-hmm. And he says this is best observed in the case of language. He said the respectable middle section of a nation sticks to the dictionary. Innovations in language come from the best statesmen, poets, writers, scientists, specialists, and from the worst slang makers. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, of thought, course. You know, that's that's true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought I thought that was a great insight. Yeah. Yeah, and the language changed. The language, the language changes, and you know we see evidence of that even this week with the whole "baby is cold outside" controversy that hit Facebook like crazy. You know, it's just 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 not understanding the context of the time, and and that the the fact that our language can shift so quickly around something. I, I know. Can you believe that? I, I just uh, now if you if you you hum that in public or something, you're a rapist or it's just absurd. Mm-hmm. It's just, yeah, but anyway, back to the ordeal of change, which I believe was his second book. He he wrote something like ten books, didn't he? Um, yes, yeah. Three are are the most well known. Um, the ordeal of change was published in sixty three, and and this is basically essays on the duality and essentiality of change in man throughout history. So he's really talking about changing, and and he starts chapter one of this book, Ed. Uh, it's titled Drastic Change, so a topic that obviously interests you and me. <laughs> yep, of course. Bring, yeah. You know, change to various uh, businesses. He says, it is my impression that no one really likes the new. We are afraid of it. And then he goes on to quote others, Dostoevsky, I think, about, um, you know, how men resist change. Uh, but the whole book kind of revolves around that concept Changes an individual and changes a society or a nation, and I just I, I just found the book profound. It really does. It's one of those books that really makes you think. And and he's what I really enjoy about him is he's philosophical. You know, yes. he always goes back to the root cause. He always goes back to the why. Like he says, he's got to have a theory about it to get mm-hmm. excited about it, and that's that's true. I mean, his you know the quote that I share that. That, that we like so much, you know, the, the whole, you know, language was invented to ask questions, right? Answers can be given yep. by grunts and gestures, but, and I love this, humanness came of age when man asked the first question. I, it, that's just one of those thoughts that once your mind wraps around it, you, you, you can't forget that. Right. You, you become changed yourself just by, by listening and understanding the phrase. Yeah. Right. I mean, um, that, that's an incredibly powerful theory, explanation, whatever you want to call it, of language. Right. Well, and I love what he does. I mean, this is definitely a philosopher thing, but 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 flipping and inverting subject and object just to explore stuff and finding great insights. I mean, uh, in in um, in in the ordeal of change, one of the things he says is we used to think that revolutions are the cause of change. And I love this. Actually, it's the other way around. Change prepares the ground for revolution. Revolution, yep. Right. So the the change is is occurs. The change happens. Right. It's it's the, the, the we can't stop that. <laughs> Excuse me. Sorry, from happening. It's the our emotional reaction then to it. Right, and of course, in this book too, intellectuals come in for quite a thumping. But uh, before we hit out on this break, let me just share one. Intellectuals have been prisoned imprisoned and liquidated in communist countries. 
and he, he makes the point that very few of them tried to escape. He said, what the intellectual craves above all is to be taken seriously, to be treated as a decisive force shaping history. He would rather be persecuted than ignored. Yep. That's, <laughs> that's incredibly profound insight. I mean, when you think about uh, social heat in the book, you know, in the first circle, wow, right. yep. uh, yeah, just incredible. <laughs> so, Ed, Ed, this is just flying by. I can't believe this guy is so interesting on so many different levels. But, folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or myself, and we do have some, uh, we've got some show business to take care of, Ed, at some point on the show today. We want to respond to some uh, emails that we've received and some other things that have happened. But in the meantime, if you want to contact Ed or me, you can send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. And, of course, check out our full show notes at thesoulofenterprise.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsor. Our sponsors, sorry. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Clouds come in all shapes and sizes, and the Abacus Private Cloud is the perfect fit. Abacus Cloud enables all the desktop apps you know and love while providing unparalleled security to your business. Cloud functionality gives you the flexibility to work where you want, when you want, and from any device you want. Don't waste countless hours managing IT. Take back your time. Learn more at abacusnext.com. Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash US forward slash SOE. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And Ron, before we begin, continue our journey through the writings of Eric Hoffer, I think we'll, let's take a, a little pause here and do do some show business. We, as uh, as you mentioned, one of the things we always like to do is if we do get a review, is to to read them out on the air. And I uh, want to thank Scott the Locksmith, great handle by the way. Yes, who, absolutely. Yeah, who uh, left us a a a review on on in December, and we really. Appreciate this. I just want to share with you what uh, Eric, uh, I'm sorry, with uh, what Scott had to say. He said, I'm a tradesperson and small business owner, so maybe I'm not the typical listener here, but I really love this show. 
I was searching for podcasts about customer service and efficiency and had the fantastic luck to find this gem. They had me at the Reagan intro, (laughs) but uh, key with topics like value pricing and the ridiculousness of tariffs, Ron and Ed have taught me a lot about how our economy works. Not just the Wall Street, or not just for Wall Street, but for small town Main Street. Common sense is something that's severely lacking from many of our political leaders. We'd all benefit if some of those guys would give a listen here. Well, honored, Scott the Locksmith. What a great review. Really appreciate that. Those of you out there that haven't reviewed the show and want to give Ron and I a Christmas present, um, and as you know, we did this, we replayed our show a couple of weeks ago about why you shouldn't buy presents, so we don't want you to buy a present, but we would love for you to go out to the iTunes section or wherever you do your listen to your podcasts and give us a rating as, as and even better if you wouldn't mind setting down a few words and sharing your review with with uh, other listeners that really helps other people find us like like Scott Scott the Locksmith so we we uh, we appreciate his his offering here and Ron you had something else that you wanted to cover as well yeah I just want to say thanks thank you Scott and welcome to the TSOE community and hope you uh, continue to enjoy the show uh, Ed, you talked about something on Free Rider Friday a couple weeks ago, or was it last week? I'm losing sense of it time. Was it was last week, Ron. It was only last week. Okay. It was only last week. Okay. It t- tells you where my head's at. But anyway, about how somebody, you know, a couple applying for a marriage license in D.C., and one of them had a New Mexico driver's license and was told that, you know, well, we can't marry a foreigner here, uh, and, and had to go had to go through another uh, supervisor to get to the second supervisor that knew that New Mexico was actually, you know, part of the U.S. of A., well, Liz Farr, one of our listeners and friends from Farr Communications, she sent us an email. And I just, I just love this. I, I was laughing so hard. She says, thanks for sharing the piece on New Mexico resident who had to convince someone that New Mexico is part of the U.S. She goes, this happens all the time. For decades, New Mexico Magazine had, has had a column called, One of Our 50 is Missing. <laughs> I love that. I've had experience with this myself. Here are some of my personal experiences. I've been told that my English is very good and that my skin is lighter than they expected. Good (laughs) gravy. This is back in the 80s when I was living in Albuquerque. I sent off to the University of Chicago for information on the graduate program in neuroscience. I received a package plastered in stamps with airmail stamped all over. Inside that package was information on the test of English as a foreign language. Which would I have? Which I would have to pass before I could enroll. And then she talks about a, a then boyfriend who um, applied to grad school at Brown University. He forgot to include a check for twenty bucks for the application fee. He got a letter back, also covered with stamps and also stamped airmail, that noted they needed this application fee. Since the fee had to be paid in U.S. dollars, they suggested that perhaps he had a friend in the U.S. who might be willing to pay on his behalf. And then I love this. She goes, no problems with the TSA, but I did run into a B.C. Border Patrol agent who asked if I had made the New Mexico license plate on my car myself. (laughs) So, Liz, uh, Liz, thanks for giving us a chuckle on that. It was absolutely hysterical. Oh, my gosh. That was great. Great. Yeah. (laughs) I guess it's a bigger problem than we thought. (laughs) <laughs> apparently i'm so glad you brought that up though about because i you know i've never thought about it or i've never heard a story like that but boy the fact that there's a whole column devoted to that is right. is is amazing it must, right. happen, it must happen all the time <laughs> and we also got um 
another email, and, and 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 this one, you and I have both had personal experience with this. So I, I knew you would you, you would resonate with this guy's email. Um, he said to me, he said, Ron, I'm I'm reading your book. He's talking about implementing value pricing, which is my latest pricing book, and have written you once before. This is a sincere question. I am 57 years old and have had my own marketing firm since 2002. In parentheses, pricing and billing by the hour, no less. And he says, what do you say to people when they read your implementing value-based pricing book? Look to the heavens and cry out in frustration. Why the hell didn't I swerve into this book and value pricing 20 years ago? Is there any sentiment that gives them peace? Even though I've started implementing this thinking in the last six months, I need it. Thank you, Tim. And and Ed, I have to tell you, I, I, I knew he was serious. I mean, this was a serious question. He was looking mm-hmm. for some comfort, right? Yep. And, and, and you I started, had none to give. You had none uh, to well, give. Well, no, I, actually, it's not true. We we've had okay, so much. Ex- yeah, we've had so much experience with this. And I wrote him back and said, "Hi, Tim. Thanks for your email." I know it's cliche to say I wish I had a nickel, but it's true nonetheless. Yours is actually a common reaction. We had one guy sit in a course on value pricing with his arms crossed and was silent the entire time. We wrote him off as a skeptic with no hope of changing his mind, let alone the behavior of his firm. We shouldn't have. He, he went back and implemented everything almost immediately, including eliminating timesheets. When we asked him how he was able to do all this so quickly, he replied, and I'm paraphrasing here, but I know I'm close. I was so damn mad sitting in your course. And I'm talking about you and, you and I's course, right? The Firm yep, of the Future yep. Boot Camp. He says, I was so damn mad sitting in your course and computing how much money I had left on the table over my career that I swore I would change. So the sentiment, I told Tim, the sentiment that should give you peace is this. It's never too late to change. It's one thing to be wrong. It's quite another to stay wrong. You've taken the first giant step. Keep in touch and let us know your progress. And yep. he wrote me back on this, Ed, and he said, thank you so much. That means more than you than you know. Mm-hmm. So I knew he was serious. Uh, and, 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 you know, I've heard a lot. Uh, I remember Brent Eukin told me the same thing. He said, he says, I bought your book back in the 90s. He said, and it sat on my shelf for 12 years before I picked it up. He said, why did I do that? I'm an idiot. <laughs> he said, you know, would have caused, would have stopped a lot of frustration. Um, so, yeah, I just thought that was really interesting. Well, when the student is ready, the teacher will come most that, of the time. Most of the time. That's true. That's true. Um, another big thing that happened uh, this week, Ed, is in Forbes uh, magazine. And it could be just online. I do not know if this was in the print version um but an article by Ma, Ma, sorry mike whitmire who is the uh co-founder and ceo of flowcast mm-hmm. which is um some type of program for cpas do you, do you know what it is i i should yeah, that's where that's where our buddy blake is yeah it's that's where blake is i yep i yeah. knew that um yeah. but but what what is it what is flow is it project management is it some type of cloud app is it no, I should know this. It, it's more. It's more about it's. It's. It's improving the the closing process. Okay. Okay. Got yeah. it. Anyway, yeah. he he wrote this article, and it's it's quite a long article, uh, and the title is "Is there really such a thing as an independent 
audit. And actually, shout out to Liz Farr, who we just read about the New Mexico example, because she's the one that pointed this out to me. I don't think I would have found it. But he goes on to talk about the whole independence of auditors controversy. And I do believe it's a controversy because I don't think they're independent, despite how much lip service that the profession pays to auditors are independent. And he and he uh, in the article he says, as I learned from Ron Baker, founder of Verisage Institute, you can't be paid to be independent. <laughs> Baker's favorite solution is to have stock exchanges select and pay auditors. After all, the exchanges themselves has, have the most gain from listing firms with trustworthy financials. And that's true. For private companies, another third-party organization could step in, such as insurance companies, who would sell financial statement insurance based on audit outcomes and maybe even hire the uh, auditors themselves to maybe only go in and audit specific things. Like if you were insuring an auto dealer, <clears throat> all you care about was their flooring, right? The, their inventory for the most part, because um, that's probably the most valuable thing. But just, just a great article, and I ended up posting it on LinkedIn, and folks, we'll put a link up into the show notes to my LinkedIn post but Ed, this LinkedIn post has gotten over fourteen thousand reads. That's awesome. With with fifty comments, so it kind of went viral somehow. And I, I'd like to shout out and thank Mike Whitmire um, for for mentioning me in this article. But uh, it's it's a topic I've been passionate about. I actually have written about it in Firm of the Future, going back to two thousand three, and wrote about it even before then. So it's something that uh, I've been talking about for some twenty years. Um, but it just falls on deaf ears. The only people who, who get really excited by this theory <laughs> are economists. Um, right. You talk to your accountants about it, and they'll just blow you off and say, well, that won't work. Um, yeah, and they'll point out all the problems with it. And I'm like, yeah, we'll compare it to what you have rather than comparing it to utopia. And this mm-hmm. would advance the ball. Well, I mean, quickly, Ron, we only got about a minute left in this segment, so we're not going to get back to Eric Hoffer on this. Why Why would accountants be so opposed to it? I mean, they're, at least in theory, they'd get paid anyway, right? I mean, it's not like you're saying eliminate the audit. You're just saying change who pays for it. Right. Well, I am saying relinquish the monopoly. I, do, I don't believe the state should. Right, well, right. The right, right, monopoly. Right. So that's the first thing they take me to task for. Okay, but even yep. if you kept that in place and said that the stock markets uh, could, could, could only hire CPAs, for instance, um, I just don't, I, you know, that lacks dynamism and innovation. Maybe there's, a, maybe insurance companies could offer financial statement insurance on, on a private company, on a public company. And mm-hmm. if I was an investor and felt comfortable with that, then it wouldn't need an audit. <laughs> and and that just freaks out CPA. I mean, it's just like it's untenable. You can't even have the discussion. It's it's almost as bad as suggesting that doctors not be licensed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, geez, how could you ensure the quality? And you mean any quack can practice medicine? It's like, no, nah, I'm convinced that it would be a better world. Mm-hmm. But it, it just it's it's incredibly controversial to bring this up in the profession. What what's that line from Upton Sinclair? Ed, you can't get a man to understand something if his if his salary, salary yeah. depends on it. Yeah, it's kind of that. <laughs> yep. 
Yeah, no, it sounds about right. Sounds about right. All right, Ron, we're up against our last break. Again, the reminder is the the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can listen to all 220 previous shows, as well as get previews to those that are upcoming. I want to remind you about our Patreon site. If you would like to hear bonus episodes that Ron and I do, which are recorded weekly after our regular show on Voice America, you can check us out there at Patreon dot com slash tsoe and that will uh, bring you there and we'd hope you would, would want to think consider subscribing but right now a word from our sponsor and my employer sage follow us on twitter at voice america trn get the lowdown on guests new shows and your favorites that's voice america trn Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash US forward slash SOE. There is no blueprint for running the perfect firm. No way to know the challenges you'll face. But your journey does not have to be an odyssey. Experience what it is like for every part of your firm to be connected. Experience a practice management tool where everything is just a click away. Experience Office Tools. To learn more, visit officetools.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're doing Memorable Mentors with Eric Hoffer. And Ed, the third book that we wanted to talk about was published uh, in 2006, Reflections on the Human Condition. And it's actually a collection of poignant aphorisms taken from his various writings, um, which I also believe include his notebooks. He had these incredible notebooks where he just made these random observations or took notes on things. And of course, that's part of the collection at the Hoover Institution, and that's what Tom Bethel kind of worked his way through in writing his book on uh, on Hoffer, which is it's over 300 pages. It's quite extensive. Uh, it's more on Eric Hoffer than you'd ever want to know, but it was I found it fascinating. Um, but there's an epigraph inside this book, Ed, that I really like, and it's and it's written in his handwriting. He mm-hmm. said, "If anybody asks me what I have accomplished, I will say." All I have accomplished is that I have written a few good sentences. <laughs> and I, I have a feeling it's, it's a lot more than a few. 
it's a lot more than a few, but it's st- I, I I do appreciate the sentiment and and you know if I, I there there have been times when I, I when I teach my consulting course, there's a workbook that goes along with it, and there's I guess twice will uh, dur- during there I'll 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 highlight something and say I wrote that sentence. That's a good sentence. I like that sentence. So <laughs> yeah. I, I see where he's coming from. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes it's just the inspiration hits, and and you and you you can clarify and crystallize an idea in a in a short period of time with just the right word, and and there's a little bit of a magic when that happens. So I I appreciate the epi- epigraph. That's for sure. Yeah, didn't Bing didn't Bing Crosby sit, when asked, you know, what do you want to be remembered for? He said, oh, you know, that I was a worthwhile crooner who could, you know, belt out a good tune or something. I mm-hmm. something like that. <laughs> understatement a little understatement but yeah 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 Yeah. and of course this is the book that the 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 great quote that introduced me to Hoffer which was that that you have quoted and we talked a little bit about it earlier the language language was invented to ask questions and and uh, what I what I and what I want to point out to that is that 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 the last sentence in that quote which is social stagnation results not from a lack of answers but from the absence of the impulse to ask questions. And I've kind of modified that in my thinking. In fact, one of the 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 the, uh, the shows that we've done, which is a, a rant based centered around my presentation on asking effective questions, I really say to the impulse to ask new questions because sometimes you can you can ask a question, but if it's the same question that we've been asking over and over again, that's not helpful. Right. Right. That's right? so true. So it's 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 about asking new and better questions and and I was talking yesterday with some folks about about um, the, the the this move from data analytics to to data science mm-hmm. right and how that data science is to me is the is folks not who can mine the data better than people that do data analytics but people who are able to ask new questions of the data yep right <clears throat> And so I, as I said, you know, and this is all related, this, this notion of, of what that Hoffer was talking about that, you know, we are the only beings that we know that ask questions. And I've had people argue with me on this. Oh, my dog asks for food all the time. I said, well, your dog is indicating a preference. I don't think they're asking a question. Then there's certainly, if anything, animals certainly aren't doing any more than, than showing or asking a, a, a Boolean question, you know, something that has a yes or no answer. Right. right. Um, if the, if they are saying feed me, it's not. Do you want popcorn or do you want dog food? Right. I mean, there's there's not there's not a, a difference there. So certainly the who, what, when, where, how questions are are very very human. Right. And and put put aside the idea that animals don't have language capability. They might have communication capability, like Coco or whatever. You know, saying three hundred words or mimicking three. But but that's not language. Right. Yep. There's a difference, certainly. So one one quote that struck me, uh, Ed, is uh, in this book was we hear a lot about the dehumanizing effects of the machine. Actually, the large scale dehumanization of the Stalin Hitler era was the work of ideological machines in Russia. The doctrinaire appliances worked better than the mechanical Mm. I thought that was a really interesting insight. Yeah, no, that is that is. So yeah, the, the, the rage against the machine isn't talking about a machine that is a actual physical machine. Now is it? 
<laughs> so, <clears throat> and then here's one that made me think of our friend AOC. Oh, all right, here we go. It's a, <laughs> here a little we go. AOC update. So, so, so it's a little, little bit of a preview before we get into the bonus because I've got a stack taller than me on her. But an empty head is not really empty; it is stuffed with rubbish. Hence the difficulty of forcing anything into an empty head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and along those lines, you know, when, when you you pointed that out in 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 your notes that you sent to me, that I have in the margin written another quote of his, which is, "We all have private ails. The troublemakers are those who need public cures for their private ails." Mm. Right. Right. And I think that that AOC may be along those lines. Uh, you know, I, all right. Well, well, we'll get into it in the bonus episode because there's there's some things that I um I'm, I I be frank I like hearing out of AOC, but it, at least at least I would give her points for intellectual consistency. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I know for sure. For right? sure, she's got her she's got her unconstrained view, as Thomas Sowell would say. Of mm-hmm. of mankind or civilization, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it, and and, and that that worldview is consistent. I that's why I don't think you know the opponents uh, when people talk about the left or the right. You know your opponent having a mental illness or derangement. I I I I, I don't buy that at all. I just think they have a different worldview, mm-hmm. and that that's best explained by Thomas Sowell's constrained and unconstrained. Um, visions that he lays out in his book well i don't know if ta- do we have time to for you to give a quick explanation for that because we're leaving them hanging on that well we've talked about it before believe it or not um no i know we have but you know <laughs> i i forget the show though that's the problem but um maybe we'll, maybe we need to do a, a show on that book i'll tell you it's one of the most powerful books he wrote um, I, th- I think it's called the uh, the two vision, a conflict divisions, a conflict divisions. It's a short little book. It's also one of the shortest books he wrote. Um, so now let's just throw it out there, and maybe we'll do a show on it at some point because I do want to read it again because he updated it. Um, oh. But what, one other, well, I know we're running out of time here, Ed. But he- here's another thing that really struck me too. He said, when a genuine leader has done his work, his followers will say. We have done it ourselves and feel that they can do great things without great leaders. With the non-creative, it's the other way around. In whatever they do, they arrange things that they themselves become indispensable. And I thought that was so true. If you're leading a movement, people should, you know, you should have followers, but Mm -hmm. people should think they should, they did it, Mm -hmm. not focus on the leader. Yep. Totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was great. Yeah, no, definitely an interesting guy, and uh, you know, I, I, I don't know, I don't know whether he was born in Germany or the U.S., but I don't think he, I, clearly I don't think he was a Nazi, so that's for sure. Well, I don't think he, he he was hiding here or anything it, like that. It, it, unless he grew up there and and you know, kind of saw what was going to happen, but it would be pretty hard to, especially being born in 1898. But mm. you know, maybe he saw things after World War II. I don't know, or World War One, but uh, I don't know. But it's just really interesting guy. Definitely worth reading, folks. We'll link all of his books up on the Soul of Enterprise, including the auto the biography I talked about by Tom Bethel. And uh, Ed, what's on store for next week? Next week, Ron, we're pretty excited. We're going to be talking about the subscription business model part two. 
Oh, right on. So we get to dive into it some more. I look forward to it. I see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world, the imagination of our people, and the power of technology. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, please feel free to visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com.